Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to another edition of A Reason for Hope. We are looking forward uh, to seeing whatever direction the Lord wants to lead our conversation uh, today. As you know, it is your questions on the Bible that determine the content of each and every edition of A Reason for Hope. We don't sit down and try to pre-plan what kind of subjects and questions we answer. Uh, They come straight from you. And uh, we are looking forward to any question you have on the Bible, what the Bible has to say maybe about the challenges of life you're currently facing. Uh, maybe a tough question or two has uh, risen in your mind uh, regarding the Bible and uh, the authenticity, the reliability of the Word of God. We'll be happy to tackle those issues, whether uh, it's a question on your own mind or maybe even a question you've been asked. Bring it on. We'll be uh, more than happy to show Uh, As we've learned time and time again on this broadcast, that even though there are tough questions out there about the Bible, the Bible has even more powerful answers. Uh, You want to talk about the events of the day, and boy, there are many, or even the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy. Hey, uh, let's uh, explore those subjects. Where in the world is this world going? Well, uh, we know that uh, the time of Jesus' return is nearer now than when we first believed. I think we can say that beyond question, and uh, we'll be happy to explore Bible prophecy with you if uh, that is on your heart or on your mind. All you have to do is join us on any one of our connections, any one of our platforms. Sean, how can people get those questions to us? Well, you can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can join us live on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, Christian fellowship.com. Note that from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time every single weekday, we are live streaming there, and you can join us both on and off air. On the right-hand side of the screen, while we are live, you can leave us your questions, but when we are not live, we'll have our email address spelled out for you at the bottom of the screen. If you prefer social media, Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and YouTube is A Reason for Hope. However, since we don't control when or why we are taken down from said platforms, we want to encourage you to avoid that risk entirely by getting used to joining us on our website. They can't ban us on our own platform. So noting the standards for the questions we'll be receiving, if they are sincere, meaning you want to hear the answer about the Bible as far as the substance of the question and its answer, and of course that it's asked in the form of a question, we'll be happy to deal with it on the broadcast for the next hour. Note uh, the raspiness of my voice is hopefully not a compromise of health. I had a three-hour live stream before this, but... What uh, was your live stream on, by the way? uh, Discussing the biblical themes in particular series within the Transformers franchise. If you uh, ever grew up with those (laughs) Robots in Disguise series, uh, some of the videos more than others. I didn't address any of the movies because... Well, I don't think I have to explain that, but uh, just clarifying and discussing how to redeem the time we have with the things that we are entertained by and bringing them in line with Scripture. Of course, not saying that Transformers is the Bible, but definitely saying that we can find Scripture in the things we are looking for if one informs the other, and vice versa. So, um, yeah, it was about uh, almost three hours and a lot of talking by myself, so (laughs) I've uh, I've talked out, as they say, but we'll still be able to answer your questions and would appreciate any support that you have here as well. But note again, 
our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, our Facebook page, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and our YouTube page is a reason for hope, but you can join us on our uh, email address to send us your questions at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Before we uh, get into your questions and uh, an interesting topic that was sent along to us on the broadcast today, uh, why don't we pray, make sure God takes this. Yeah, let's do that. Father, I thank you so much that we have this opportunity today to seek your face and to draw close to you and to hear your voice, Lord, as you speak to us through your word. Lord, you know the people that you're drawing uh, to this broadcast right now, what's going on in their hearts and in their lives. Lord, I pray that you would have very special, uh, applicable passages in the Bible that will really hit home with right where they are at and the the, uh, challenges they're facing. I pray that you would encourage those that are doing well to excel still more. Uh, Show us uh, how to uh, make the most of these days, to live wisely in these times that are so challenging, according to the beauty and the the awesomeness and the light and love that we find in your word. We welcome your presence here. Uh, Guide us and direct us now according to your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. Now, as we often take the time to inform you if there's something biblically relevant in the news that is locally here in the United States or prophetically relevant internationally. Uh, We want to address it so that you all can have an informed perspective on it. And interestingly enough, uh, interesting celebrity figure, host or guest host rather, a lot of talk shows, Stacey Abrams has come out saying that... Running for uh, governor of Georgia as we speak. Yeah, Interesting. uh, Made a declarative statement that the... I guess, scientific uh, measurements of fetal heartbeats at a certain point in gestation. Was it 15 Six weeks. weeks. Six weeks. Yeah. Uh, is a conspiracy theory produced by the people who invented those machines in order to deceive people into thinking that it's a life. Now, what's important to note about that is it's false, and she's, uh, of course, very much alone in her positions apart from mindless Twitter bots. In, uh, the oh, MS- you'd be surprised. She's starting to... Uh have uh, people rally to her position, believe it or not. I repeat my point. But uh, we, of course, want to make sure that both sides are represented on this. So if we're going to get a source that would condemn her views, we'd want to hear it from those on her side, because obviously those against her are going to voice the same opinions you'll hear here. But fortunately, uh, a not exactly bastion of right-wing's politics, MSN.com, and the Washington Examiner uh, hosted an opinion piece yesterday yesterday on Stacey Abrams' statements and said, this is a quote on the first sentence of the article, Stacey Abrams has just said something that was absolutely insane. It's possible she misspoke, but the media is already running cover for her, but they shouldn't because beneath her wild conspiracy theory are other false assertions and bad science. She uh, goes on to note at face value the conspiracy theory. She's saying, this is the article from MSN.com, Taken literally, she is saying that ultrasound machines were designed to deceive patients by people who wanted to, quote, convince people that men have the right to take control of a woman's body. And he notes the opinion piece. One is tempted to add the, quote, without evidence, unquote, to her assertion, but it's too unhinged a statement to even warrant that epithet. No sane person believes that General Electric and Simons designed their ultrasound machines in order to subjugate 
women. Then he goes on to give the benefit of the doubt that perhaps she misspoke or caught up in the crowd that was rallying around that, that, uh, well, it was just a false statement, but he doubles down and says this is just an outright conspiracy theory. And since this individual is running for public office and will be making decisions relevant to how her state views pro-life or pro-abortion stances, the fact that her opinions are not based in reality is uh, hopefully informative to our voters. But the point being made is this. When we come at this from a Christian perspective, there's obviously two angles to examine this. First of all, the Christian perspective on abortion and the pro-life stance, or the Christian perspective on how we should view leaders that are showing, even according to those who would be on the same political side of the aisle as they are, insane statements. And we need to make sure that we're taking that quote from them, not from ourselves. These are obviously uh, opinions that are made by an individual, but an individual who is putting themselves in a position of power. And it wouldn't be the first time in history that someone with low mental faculties was in a position of power, but Scripture's position on that isn't to seek their disposition, but to pray for them. That in the time Paul the Apostle told us to pray for those in authority, in the book, uh, the letter rather, written to the Romans, Emperor Nero was the one who was in charge at that time. And oddly enough, Emperor Nero had more conspiracies underneath his belt than Stacey Abrams could ever boast. He uh, orchestrated the mass slaughter and persecution of Christians on a societal and governmental level because, well, he was staging burning down buildings in order to justify his construction project of a temple built for himself. So I don't think we're that far gone yet. But the point being made is this, when we're talking about the... Yet. (laughs) We're talking about the pro-life or pro-abortion issue. First of all, our goal should be for people, Stacey Abrams or otherwise, to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and that he will soften their hearts concerning his perspective on the children he himself created. What would be an informed perspective on that? And also note, do you have anything to add on the political aspect of this? Yeah, well, uh, you know, as far as the politics are concerned, uh, if you've been following us on uh, Twitter at ScottArt4H, my uh, point of view is uh, we, we inevitably... Uh, cringe when politicians attempt to commit theology. Uh, and it's not just Stacey Abrams that uh, has done this. I think you've done a good job of uh, pretty much wrapping up this controversy. But there was another uh, politician who has weighed in on uh, the abortion controversy with a, a bit of a theological bent, more than a bent. Uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom uh, is uh, uh, launching a campaign to bring new tourism dollars to a state with a very interesting angle on it. He is trying to cultivate uh, abortion tourism uh, to California. He is doing that uh, by uh, placing billboards in seven of the most restrictive anti-abortion states. Uh, These billboards, according to an uh, an announcement by Newsom, these are the, the words from his office, explain how women can access care no matter where they live. To any woman seeking an abortion in these anti-freedom states, and again, these are their words, California will defend your right uh, to make uh, decisions about your health. Well, uh, along with uh, putting up billboards uh, that, for instance, one of them says, South Dakota doesn't own your body, you do, and it shows a woman standing in 
handcuffs. Learn more at abortion.ca.gov. Uh, the uh, most interesting thing is a quote that is underneath it, uh, another uh, pro-abortion uh, billboard that uh, is uh, running in uh, these states. Not only has this, but also has this quote underneath, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these, Mark chapter 12 and verse 31. So uh, we not only have uh, Newsom uh promoting the idea of abortion tourism, people heading to California, attempts to justify the idea of providing abortion on demand for women from these states uh, in a biblical light by quoting uh, Jesus answered the question, what is the greatest commandment in the law? He said, uh, you shall, there are two. Uh, The first is, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, uh, Newsom was the one who put uh, this quote up on the billboard, so I guess it's fair game to critique it from a biblical point of view. Uh, I'm not sure how loving it is to uh, eviscerate a helpless human being in the womb. I would think that that would be the absolute antithesis of loving your neighbor. I guess if you've defined that uh, pre-born life as no longer your neighbor, you're right up there with uh, the individual that set up Jesus' famous parable, the Good Samaritan. Uh, when Jesus laid out uh, these two great commandments, uh, this lawyer wanting to split hairs, as lawyers often do, said, who's my neighbor? And essentially the parable of the Good Samaritan uh, detailed that the one who was in need was your neighbor. Well, if an individual is helpless, they're in a preborn state, uh, an individual is contemplating uh, uh, terminating their life in a very painful and a vicious and a violent way, I would say that that qualifies as your neighbor. Uh, how about you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Remember Jesus' words about children in Matthew chapter 19 when the disciples uh, tried to shoo off parents who wanted Jesus to bless their children. Uh, Jesus, uh, actually in the parallel account of the book of uh, Mark, snorted like an angry horse. He was so indignant about it uh, and said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for such is the kingdom of God. I'm not sure we're going to see that quote up on a billboard uh, put up by the state of California. I think it's fascinating uh, that uh, California taxpayers' money is going to promote these particular billboards. Uh, It's a pretty uh, tragic thing, although uh, they are being paid for by Newsom for California governor uh, 2022, uh, apparently. So, uh, you know, I I did not know that um, Governor Newsom was up for re-election this year. Uh, I don't believe he is. I think he survived a recall effort earlier this year. But uh, the fascinating thing is, Here we see politicians attempting to, uh, well, in a sense, get out of their lane and practice theology. One of the things that that I've learned over the years is that uh, pretty much everybody uh, that you talk to in uh, theological terms, especially non-believers, believes uh, that they have the God-given right to offer their takes on the Bible and uh, to uh, give their spiritual uh, two cents worth about it, which is fine as long as you're allowing the Bible to speak for itself. The minute you say the Bible says, well, then you'd better be able to back that up by showing that the statement that you're making actually is something that fits context, and uh, not only the context of the immediate passage, because anybody can uh, 
uh, slice, dice, and make coleslaw out of the Bible to prove any point. Uh, some will say, you know, the Bible teaches there is no God. Well, they're not quoting the full context of that statement. Psalm 14 and verse 1 says, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. So when we see politicians trying to play theologians, I think it's almost as odious as when uh, pastors try to play politicians and uh, become so enamored of uh, preaching a particular uh, political persuasion that they leave the scriptures behind. Can we apply the scriptures to uh, decisions that we make in voting booths? Well, you know, one of the things that you will constantly hear us talk about here on this broadcast is uh, that there really are two issues that we believe uh, that should inform the political decisions, how you decide to vote, uh, of every Bible-believing uh, born-again Christian. And number one is what is that politician's stance on protecting pre-born life for the reasons we've just enumerated? But uh, secondly, what does that politician stand on standing for Israel? You know, the rest of it, I think, is uh, up to a, a particular person's uh, own persuasions. But uh, those are the two non-negotiables that we tend to put forth. And so, then a close third, religious liberty. If we don't have to be thrown into prison for our belief, then that's good. Yeah, we certainly don't want to uh, promote politicians that are moving in that direction. But uh, the, the, the long and the short of it is this. Uh, when uh, Stacey uh, Abrams or Gavin Newsom attempt uh, to uh, play uh, pastor, and uh, one of the most uh, difficult things is when I see uh, people uh, like Stacey Abrams uh, promoting herself, and she said something to the effect of that she is running in the spirit of Deborah from the Old Testament. Well, I was unaware that uh, Deborah was in favor of uh, eviscerating uh, defenseless children. Uh, I think she did some eviscerating in her uh, career, but not of defenseless children. Uh, when you see politicians try to play uh, pastors and even speak from pulpits, to me, I think that's almost disqualifying. Yeah. A uh, question from Annie, who was asked by her son. This is kind of a two-part clarification. If we believe in God and Jesus, okay, uh, we go to heaven when we die, right? She answered that they are assured that if they have faith that Jesus paid the price of our sin through his blameless persecution— We'll clarify a bit of this, but uh, and that he conquered death as demonstrated by his resurrection. The son then asked, so if someone doesn't believe that, does God send them to hell forever, even if they're good people? She know how to answer. Well, Annie, uh, oh, that's a great question. question. Let's uh, first clarify what is the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7. I delivered to you that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Right. This was then verified by over 500 witnesses, which we have documentation for earlier than any other historical event. Now, you can acknowledge that Jesus rose from the dead, Satan can acknowledge that too, yeah. but acknowledging that it was done for you, for your ransom, for the just penalty of sin, which is death. The separation of your body from your consciousness is physical death. The separation of your soul from God is spiritual death, the second death, as we talked about last Wednesday in Revelation 20 and verse 15. But what's interesting about this is then people throw out the hypothetical, which you know we're all in favor of. What about the good people who've never heard that, or the good people who deny that? Will God send good people to hell? 
and we always like to... It's kind of a non-starter, isn't it? Yeah, we always like to, first of all, clarify what hell is, what it was created for, and what heaven is, and what it is. So uh, let's start with what hell is. If we're going to consider the status of someone in hell, what is the first and most significant detail about that person's existence? First, that they exist and they will continue to exist consciously. That is important, because then in that state, what are they as far as uh, adjectives are concerned? Well, the Bible describes it as a state of torment. It's compared to outer darkness, a lake of fire, and a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem known as Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom. All places I don't think you'd voluntarily want to go, or at least stay there. And the point, again, stands. When we're talking then about how someone goes to hell, people think that, you know, God's cranking a lever or, you know, they're being uh, tossed in by some burly angel or something. No, in fact, uh, Charles, uh, um, I won't uh, bother to know his abbreviation, C.S. Lewis made an observation that the doors of hell are locked from the inside, and that insight is a biblically informed one, because the only people who go to hell are those who proactively reject heaven, and so God has made an accommodation for him. There was a quote that you read in the message, and we'll get to that in a moment. But the point of emphasis I think you need to make to your son is clarifying what hell is. Hell isn't God being so offended that they wouldn't want to be in heaven that he makes this miserable place for them all to go forever because he's just that sourpuss about the whole idea of not everyone loving him or something. When we're talking about hell, it is actually the greatest compliment ever given to mankind because of what heaven is. Heaven is not necessarily a place. It is not even necessarily some, like, dimension outside of the universe. The Bible has three definitions for the word heaven. When it says heavens, like God created the heavens and the earth, or birds fly in the midst of heaven, that can be referring to the atmosphere or the universe as a whole. But God, who was around and existed before he made the universe, also had a presence, and that was what we would call heaven, and it still is right now. Heaven is with Jesus. Understand that, and make sure, Annie, that your son understands that. What makes heaven paradise? What makes everything about it beautiful? When people say, oh, well, Revelation 21 and 22, the the streets of gold and the gates like one pearl and all the oysters, I guess, that would have to produce yeah. that and stuff. No, it's that's going to be in the new creation. We're talking about heaven here. Heaven, in the sense of the third heaven, as Paul the Apostle describes it in 2 Corinthians, I believe, chapter 12, the vision where he was brought up to the third heaven and said, I couldn't put it into words. It wasn't this specific region or area. It is the state of being with Jesus. Now, let's then ask ourselves, if someone is sent to hell, what makes that existence so horrible? It is without Jesus. And what's important about this, too, is if we're going to take the full implications of all of this, why is hell a thing to begin with? We're told in Matthew 25 that hell was a place prepared for the devil and his angels. But anyone who follows in their heart, their mindset, and their ultimate purpose will also join them. Now, what caused them to want such an existence apart from God? That's the point. 
They wanted an existence apart from God. They didn't want Jesus. So if we're going to ask, or I guess impute of God, cruelty for sending someone to an awful place, we're forgetting the fact that hell, as Pastor Chuck oftentimes observed, is the hardest place to get into because when God saw his entire creation heading towards separation from him forever, that is hell, when they chose separation from him, not just in an immediate but an eternal sense, when we wanted hell, he literally said, over my dead and resurrected body, there was no way for us to be restored to fellowship with God apart from God's direct and note, undeserved intervention. And this is something that you need to emphasize to your son, Annie, that when God reached down to us, it wasn't because we were good people and just needed help. It wasn't because we deserved the status of heaven, and so God was obligated to make that available to us if we so desired, if we were so inclined. No, fellowship with him would be a conscious choice, and people who consciously choose that, God respects it. Uh, the illustrations oftentimes made by Frank Turek and cross-examined when this is leveled by college students, believe it or not, that if someone was, and this is, of course, an imaginary scenario that no man, woman, or child here ever listening has ever experienced ever, <laughs> if they are attracted to somebody and the person isn't in on that joke, that they aren't returning their advances, then what would be the most loving thing to do? It would be to leave them alone. But if we impose this perfect attitude of God in the hypothetical world where he's obligated to give us heaven, what we're essentially expecting of God is for him to say in that same illustration and scenario, no, I'm the best thing for you, and I'm going to force you to be with me forever. Yeah. Kind of creepy now that we see it in light of reality. And this is the whole point, Ani, and emphasize this to your son. When we're talking about heaven, we're saying with Jesus. When we're talking about hell, we're saying without Jesus. When people don't want Jesus, he literally made it possible for us to exist without him, but gave us full warning that without him is a state of torment, not torture. Torment is an internal state of anguish where you are left with yourself and everything unpleasant that results as a part of you being separated from God. When we say, quote-unquote, good people, we have to ask, what do you mean by good? And even citing Jesus, there is none good but one, that is God. If we dismiss the existence of God, then there is no heaven or hell. You just cease to exist, and frankly, it's a question why we exist in the be uh, to begin with. Stephen Wright once made the observation that you didn't exist forever in the past, and then you exist for the short time, and then you continue to not exist forever into the future. So this existence is basically a break of not existing. Yeah, that's real cheery. But if, on the other hand, we allow for the existence of God, then let him actually define his terms. If he's explained to us what heaven and hell are, if he's explained to us why we are headed to hell, why we would want hell, and understand everything that he's done to prevent us from going there, then the only people who go to hell are not only those who chose it, but literally shook their fist in the face of God, who made it so that the doors of heaven could be opened simply by acknowledging a relationship with him again. Now, if that's then understood as being the case, then this doesn't sound like a difficult question, 
but it does sound like there's a lot of difficult assumptions, and those are what need to be spotted. Anything to clarify as far as the quotes or details? Yeah, well, you know, again, C.S. Lewis uh, had a great line about uh, what more would you want God to do? Uh, people say, well, you know, I mean, there there's uh, people that are going to end up in hell. Well, you know, C.S. Lewis said, would you want God to provide forgiveness for them? He already did at the cross. Would you want uh, God to show people that uh, that is the way to get out of this uh, horrible eternal destination? Yeah, he did it by raising his son from the dead. And then he made a really interesting observation. He said the only people ultimately that end up unforgiven by God and therefore separated from him forever are those who refuse God's gift of forgiveness. That's really the way the Bible paints it. And, uh, you know, the, the whole idea about good people, uh, we tend to evaluate people kind of on a, uh, a peer-level basis. But when we talk about the goodness of God, God is completely and totally perfectly good. There is no darkness in him at all. You know, the analogy gets uh, put up, Annie, and maybe this will be helpful about, well, why couldn't God just allow, uh, say, people that were 90% good into heaven? 90% gets you an A in a class in college. Wouldn't that be enough? Well, okay, let's, let's grant that, okay? If God's going to allow the 90%ers in, well, then why wouldn't he allow the 89%ers in? They're just off by a point, and you could follow that same rationale all the way down to the point where you've got Hitler in heaven. Well, the, the bottom line is this. God has provided a way out. And as you mentioned, Chuck Smith's famous quote, hell is the toughest place in the universe to get into. You've got to literally crawl over the cross of Jesus Christ to get there. And when you, you talk to your son about this, I think the, the best way to address the issue is then to ask your son, well, why do you think Jesus had to die on a cruel Roman cross to pay the price for sins? Uh, what, what, how do you understand that? Well, you know, I think your son will understand that God did that because... He loves us, and because he doesn't want to see us go to hell. God has done every single thing possible in order for us not to go to hell. And that's really, I think, the, the point of emphasis there. Understand something. Uh, the only people that are going to end up in hell are the ones who choose it. And C.S. Lewis had that interesting statement about uh, hell's uh, door is locked from the inside. Uh, people who are there do not want to have anything whatsoever to do with God. So if your son definitely wants to have something to do with God, that would be the, uh, the bridge that I might use to be able to share the truth of how uh, God has gone to such lengths to make an eternity with him possible. All right. A uh, question from Ezekiel, uh, who mentions a few scholars on a Wikipedia article saying that Barabbas and Jesus, not Barnabas, Barabbas and right. Jesus were the same person. Is this true? Why would they think that? And was Jesus and Bar uh, Barnabas or Barabbas the same person? See, I can do it too. Well, um, the reason they claim that, and again, it's a huge stretch, but such is the case if you're yeah. a Jesus mither, because that's thought of in scholarly circles as basically being a Holocaust denier. I only thought Richard Carrier held that position, but that's him. Um, the claim that Jesus and Barabbas were conflated, 
sometimes in early gospel sources, and that's because in the early gospels they actually gave full names. Barabbas would be his surname, and what's interesting as well is it would be not last names as far as modern uh, terms are concerned, but we have Jesus ben Yosef, or son of Joseph. Barabbas's name is actually Aramaic, and it would be son of the father. Right. Now, what's interesting is that when you look at this picture, what was Barabbas's first name? It was also Jesus. Now, again, Joshua, or Yeshua, which means God is salvation, or Savior, by the way. Popular uh, name in that day. Very popular name. Yeah. Just like Jesus's brothers were also given popular uh, Jewish names, like James, Judas, Simon, and others. Simon, Jesus's brother, was not the same as Simon Peter, Jesus' yeah. apostle, and on it goes. But the fact that they had the same first name was obviously confusing for some early writers, so they just emphasized, well, this is Barabbas, but he would have been introduced as Yeshua Barabbas. Then you've got Jesus, you've got Yeshua bin Yosef, and people, of course, would have gone, well, which one's the Messiah then, the son of the father or the son of Joseph? And by the way, Joseph's names also has significance, but we'll uh, spare the details unless that's what you want to know, Ezekiel. The claim historically, again, uh, as far as Wikipedia can be taken seriously, it is accurate that they had the same first name. It is an incredible leap historically, and no wonder it's a minority of scholars' positions, because only modern scholarship could produce that kind of incompetence, is that because they had the first name, that means they were the same person. I have met more than one Sean in my life. That does not disprove my existence. So when we hear these sort of things, again, the best thing to do first is to, if you're talking to someone online, just say, well, where did you find that out? Actually read the sources if they provide them, and of course, start to ask follow-up questions like, okay, they had the same first name. What does that have to do with whether or not it was made up? And there was a follow-through saying that they regard the historical accuracy of Barabbas, which again, doesn't change based off of his name. But they claimed that they were the same person and that the biblical account was man-made. I think that is a much better follow-through on this question because it's for some reason, throwing people for a loop when they hear the Bible was written by men, as if A, we deny that, and B, as if that means anything apart from the fact it was a physical document. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of cultic groups like Islam and Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and etc., who would elevate their scriptures to say, no, this is divine dictation. This is the God, like, inscribed, like Exodus 20 style writing where it was carved with the finger of God into gold tablets and then sent down to our prophet when he was praying in the woods and thought he was attacked by a demon, but then later said it was yeah. God <laughs> <laughs> yeah. or Muhammad yeah. with the same, interestingly enough, encounter. But the point being made is just that. When people say the Bible is man-made, A, do we deny that, and B, why is that not a problem? Well, uh, no, we don't deny that in that man had a hand in it. Uh, the Bible does tell us, though, uh, about the doctrine of inspiration. That is that God supernaturally superintended the men who uh, wrote the scriptures uh, to be able to write precisely uh, what uh, God had in mind. There's a couple of very important passages uh, about this that we've uh, got to keep in mind. First of all, we are told in the book of Second uh, Peter chapter 1 that uh, no prophecy of Scripture is any private interpretation 
for uh, holy men of old uh, wrote as they were inspired or, or literally directed by God. The, the word inspired there, or moved by the Holy Spirit, is a picture of, uh, in nautical terms, of a boat that was directed by strong trade winds to a particular destination. In other words, if you were going to go out and uh, ply your living on the seas, you would uh, know where these trade winds were, and they would get you exactly where you needed to go, depending on that time of year. So um, our claim isn't that these people got possessed by a good, you know, angel and then had to like subconsciously. No, it's not. Write it's not like automatic writing, but uh, God did, in fact, inspire them and uh, inspired them to a level. And this is the Bible's claim on this in First uh, Timothy chapter three and verse sixteen. We are told that all Scripture, literally each and every one is inspired by God. The word there is theopneustos. That literally means God-breathed. It is just as much God's word, uh, the Bible claims about itself, as if we were standing in the very presence of God, hearing him speak, and were close enough to actually feel his breath as he parsed out the words. So he's the mind before the matter, and the matter is, of course, men writing the Scripture, which we don't deny. Now, we can't prove that these men were directed by God, unless we test the documents they're writing. What would we expect from God? Well, these are Jewish men writing Jewish scriptures, treated the way Jewish scriptures generally would be treated. So do they, first of all, set up a reasonable standard? This is the questions we ask, Ezekiel. Do they set up a reasonable standard for the sort of information we'd expect from God? You can go the Bart Ehrman route and say, well, if it was from God, then it's never going to be altered in any way, and anyone who, like, even thinks of shortening a letter would get instantly burst into flames, and that's what I expect from God. Okay, you're irrational. But if, on the other hand, we'd expect the sort of things God would communicate and the standards by which they are tested being reasonable— could we then conclude their writing was, in fact, inspired by God? What are some of the reasons? Well, the standard going all the way back to Moses, the first man that God used to put his words into writing. He had appeared to people before, but not in this way. Right. When Moses handed down Scripture, they said in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that this is how you'll know that the Lord has spoken. First of all, they claim to be a prophet or a spokesman for God. That's what that means, someone who speaks on behalf of another. When they make that claim, they got to live up to the standard Moses set, which was what? First of all, they would have to be accurate in the information that they provided. God's going to get his facts straight. Note, that doesn't mean they're going to say things that aren't popular in culture. That doesn't mean that they're not going to say things that, oh, well, if I misrepresent it or take it in a piecemeal way and then use it as a way of basically associating it with a slur or an unpopular political group, then that means it's an error. Now I can conclude the Bible's false. No, taking the Bible on its own standards and within its own setting and audience. If it's factually correct, and if you can actually... Archaeologically, culturally, geographically. And note, can we test everything archaeologically in the Bible? No, but what we can test, has that been verified or, even more importantly, disproven? Without exception, it has only confirmed uh, the uh, record of the Bible. So note, it gets its facts straight. Not all the facts you may like, but if it presents information and it can be verified, it will line up with reality. That's what we mean by true. Second, it's going to be consistent. If Moses comes along and says something about God, Joshua then says, I'm the successor to Moses, because, you know, you were there, you saw him say it. 
I'm not going to suddenly say, oh yeah, uh, by the way, our God isn't a spirit, as you saw him guiding us through the wilderness. He's a lizard. He's a giant lizard that uh, breathes fire and bubbles, and it's got this weird... Well, Aaron tried to do that with a cow, but but, yeah, they, uh, but we digress. <laughs> yeah, Moses had to prevent him from being killed by yeah. directly interceding for him before God. The point, though, being made is just that. If he's going to be inconsistent, what would he be? He'd be a false prophet. Right. And then the third standard comes along. You would have to be accountable as a prophet. If you made a false statement in the name of God or you misrepresented God, that means that you were subject to capital punishment. This is not the sort of job career people went in order to get notoriety. It was very risky. Right. And finally, if you were going to claim you were a prophet of God, and here's where the big risk comes in, you would not only be speaking God's words, but whenever God spoke his words, he would also back them up with deeds. You had to publicly perform miracles, whether they were predictions of the future that 100% had to come to pass, or again, they'd kill you with rocks, mm -hmm. or they would take your word seriously. And that's the reason why those books are in our Bible and others aren't. Now, there have been people who tried to co-opt and distort and twist. The New wor uh, World Translation of the Watchtower is a deliberate mistranslation of the Scriptures. The Council of Trent purposely added books to the Bible that the Jews themselves who wrote it said weren't in the Bible because they never claimed to be prophets nor their authors. The point then being made stands. That's why these books are passed. So if then we say that these men wrote the Bible, once again, what kind of men wrote the Bible? Not just the sort of people who said, hey, I'm speaking from God. Not just the people who said, hey, I got some opinions about God, or I want to make some uh, tweaks to what Isaiah said back there. Not even people who necessarily said, hey, I know something about God. These were people who were publicly verified by God through the performing of miracles, through a consistent standard of accountability, and, of course, according to the model set by Moses and the accuracy of the information they gave. We can't verify the supernatural, but we can test the natural. Why do we take the scriptures seriously? Not because more scholars than you agree, but because the information checks out. And according to its standard, which I think is reasonable, your opinion may vary, God gives you that liberty, it all stands or falls on that. If God communicated word, if someone communicated words accurately, were consistent in their presentation of that information over 1,500 years of history in three different languages, two of which aren't even spoken anymore today, across four different cultures and continents, and all maintaining the same opinions right. on some of the most controversial subjects known to men, and then to boot, everyone who was taken seriously in these writings performed public miracles, showing that something beyond nature was verifying their message. I'd say that you got the Word of God. You may differ, but that's the whole point. Yeah. You want to come to a reasonable conclusion, you want to form unreasonable standards and judge accordingly, then God will be the judge over you. But this is the standard we hold ourselves as Christians and ask ourselves every day. Do you believe this? Yeah, and I guess uh, bringing it back uh, around the, the corner to the idea of uh, Barabbas and Jesus uh, being uh, exchange with one another and these scholars uh, trying to make uh, hay out of all this. You know, my answer to that, uh, Ezekiel, is just go to the primary document. Uh, 
take a look at who Barabbas was. In uh, Matthew chapter 27 and verse 15, we are told now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing the multi- to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew they had handed him over because of envy. While he was still sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor asked and said, Which of these two do you want to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said, What shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. The governor said, Why? What evil has he done? They cried out all the more, uh, let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And the people answered and said, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Well, you could say an awful lot of things about that particular passage, Ezekiel, but you couldn't say that Barabbas, even though his name meant son of the father, uh, was was, uh, in any way, shape, or form conflated or confused with Jesus. One was set free. uh, One was uh, scourged and crucified. One was a notorious criminal. The other, even Pontius Pilate could see, was being set up because the Jewish leaders were jealous of him. And if they're claimed to be historians, they should also know the gospel accounts are independent attestations of the same event. We have not one but three other sources that verify that event historically, and all the figures mentioned, including especially Pontius Pilate, have also been verified. If they want to claim otherwise, they got some splaining to do. You know, the only other thing I would throw into all of this, and I I don't want to uh, 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 judge motives, uh, as far as uh, why someone would come up with something like this. But one of the things you're going to discover in academia, uh, Ezekiel, is there's a notion called publish or perish. In other words, uh, if you are an academic, uh, the way you hold on to your job is to get uh, published in academic journals. And one of the ways you can get uh, published in academic journals, actually there are two ways. Number one, you can get published in academic journals by coming up with something new something that is innovative, something that nobody has really posited before. And I think that may be where you get this conflation of Jesus and Barabbas theory being promoted. Uh, The other thing that you can uh, do to make sure that you always uh, get promoted, particularly in uh, the more liberal schools of theology and uh, Bible scholarship, of which there are many, is come up with something that causes discredit or doubt to be cast upon the traditional and biblical view of who Jesus is and what he did. Yeah, If you do those two things, chances are you're going to get an audience, which is why someone like Richard Carrier, although he is not held in high esteem by fellow scholars, still gets published today. Yeah. Uh, so all that being said, uh, speaking of people, for whatever reason, continuing to try to discredit Scripture— I really wish they'd get better at it, but here we go. Uh, This is uh, another one of our atheist contradictions in the Bible. Uh, This is a statement about it contradicting how David killed Goliath. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, 49 through 50, it says that David killed Goliath with a sling. But in 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 51, for those of you doing math at home, 
the next verse, it says that he cut off his head with his own sword. So, which is it? Did David kill Goliath with a sling and a stone, or did David kill Goliath with a sword? Can you kill someone twice? Well, the Bible never says he was killed by the stone. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Well, let's not take your word for it. You're one of those bigoted Christians. You're a biased. So let's read verse 49 of 1 Samuel 17. I don't even have to give the full context. It says, Then David, putting his hand in his bag, took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead, so that the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Now, Anything interesting in that so far? He fell down? There is no pronouncement of death being made in that that passage. All right, definitely. conspicuous by its absence. Definitely a possibility of death. Definitely a, uh, I guess, uh, trip to the But we're not told. Trip to the infirmary, to be sure. Yeah. The question is, is he dead? Well, let's find out. (laughs) We're going to find out real quick. It says, now, the Philistine... He struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore, in light of what? How did he strike him? With the stone? Like, did he take the stone out and then hit Goliath over and over again? No, that's a big N-O. Okay, so it says, Therefore, David, in light of the fact there was no sword in the hand of David, the verse they cited as contradicting the verse they cited, took his sword drew it out of its sheath, and killed him, and cut off his head with it. So the objection to this passage and the claim of a contradiction in the Bible is counting on you not looking up two conjoining verses, but a series of verses that explain, therefore, since David had no sword, he struck the Philistine and killed him. How's he going to do that? The rock's lodged in his head. Well, he took out his sword... Goliath's sword, a sword, by the way, that he later used in 2 Samuel when fleeing for his life from Saul, uh, 1 Samuel, rather, and what? Killed him with it. So this is where we employ our tactics in dealing with a Bible contradiction. The first thing to do is to know what a contradiction is. Is it a violation of the second formal law of logic, the law of non-contradiction, that two things in the same way and in the same sense both can't be true and at the same time cancel each other out. If this is a contradiction, then what would it say? That David killed Goliath with a sling, or David did not kill Goliath with a sling, or David killed Goliath with a sword, or David did not kill Goliath with a sword. The person can infer, well, since David killed Goliath with a sling and a stone, that means he doesn't kill him with a sword unless you read the text, in which case it says, yeah, he knocked the Philistine on the ground. He's a very tall guy, and David was, you know, still young at this time, so how is he going to reach? How did he cut his head off? With a sword in the next verse. Right. And this is the second step. Call their bluff. Show me where and when this contradicts itself, because if you know what a contradiction is and you're able to demonstrate that to the person from the verse they're apparently citing, they will either have to double down in something that the people around you are going to tell is not rational, or they're going to have to admit, well, there's a lot worse examples than that. 
then just repeat and rinse. Know what a contradiction is. Show me where and when. Yeah. Because it doesn't get better than this. And the only thing I would add to that is uh, when you show them that the alleged contradiction they've gotten from AtheistRS.com isn't a contradiction. Don't just leave it there. Uh, One of the most important things that we can do when we're sharing the faith is not just get into a debate where we show people factually that what we're saying is right and they are wrong. Uh, That's important if they're believing things about God or themselves or what it means to know God that just aren't true. But it's only the first step. Then you've got to make the transition to saying, okay, I've just shown you that the Bible is reliable here, that it doesn't contradict itself. Can I show you something else that the Bible has to say that you really need to pay attention to? And then at this point, share with them. Say uh, Jesus' uh, statement in John chapter 14 and verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. At that point, you might ask them an important question. Who do you think Jesus is? And they might say, well, I think he's just a good teacher. To say, well, then what do you think about what he taught here? Why do you suppose he would say something like this? And at that point, you can transition in to telling them about the fact that there was no other way to save us than for Jesus to live a sinless life that we could never live, to offer that as a sacrifice to God, to satisfy his justice and his mercy and his love. And that anyone that puts their faith and their trust in Jesus is going to be forgiven and adopted into God's forever family. Why wouldn't you want to put your faith and trust in the Lord for that? Now, at that point, that person might uh, start sharing uh, a bit about why they are so hacked off and ticked off at the God of the Bible. Well, then that's good. Then you can start getting down to matters of the heart. Care about the person, speak the truth in love, and uh, then I think that these things are going to be very, very effective. So, right. uh, a question I wanted to uh, run by you, Sean, because you have uh, some background in understanding all of this. I guess things are uh, heating up in Iran uh, right now, as, no. as far as uh, not just Iran uh, playing fast and loose with the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the nuclear deal, and so on. But uh, there was a woman by the name of Masa. Uh, Amini, who fell into a coma and died after being arrested by the morality police in Mm -hmm. Iran for supposedly wearing her hijab incorrectly. Um, She uh, died in jail uh, shortly thereafter. Her death sparked much rage and protest against the Iranian regime, with Iranian women taking to social media media and cutting their hair and burning their hijabs. There was another uh, video that was issued today of an Iranian man on a motorcycle seeing a woman not wearing her hijab correctly. Uh, getting off of the motorcycle and going over and slapping the woman in the face. Mm -hmm. Uh, He went back to his motorcycle business as usual, only to be confronted by three different men who stopped him, pulled him off of his motorcycle. He attempted to to, uh, spray them with pepper spray. But then a uh, crowd formed, and they began uh, to uh, assault this man for doing this. And, in fact, the woman whom he had slapped for wearing her hijab incorrectly uh, turned around and joined in the crowd, which is kind of an outrageous thing when you stop and consider the uh, iron fist with which the uh, mad mullahs run Iran. What is the deal with the hijab? Um, why is this significant? And is this showing that uh, perhaps things might be changing in Iran? 
Well, the good news is when it comes to the hijab, and I'll just be brief about this, it's a reference and response to a situation taking place in the life of Muhammad, where in Surah 24 and verse 31 it says, And say to the believing women to restrain their eyes and to keep their private parts, uh, and do not display their ornaments, except which appears from it, that they throw their veils over their bosoms and do not display their ornaments. This is not reflecting jewelry, it's reflecting other things. Except to their husbands or their fathers or husbands' fathers or sons or so on and so forth. Now, here's the key. Or what their right hand possessed to male fathers, so that no substantial sexual desire, nor children who have looked at the woman's private parts, and not stomp with their legs so that their hidden ornaments may be known, and repent to Allah altogether, you unbelievers, you may prosper. And then it goes on to note that you can have sex slaves from non-believers. The point being made is this. If you are wearing your hijab, you're guarding your private parts, and you won't be. This is in the tafsir of Yusuf Ali, Ibn Kathir, Darabidi, and Corpus. It was in the context of women wondering. They keep getting molested by men who can't control their lust, and then Allah revealed this, saying, well, it's obviously not the men's problems for a lack of self-control. The women just need to dress more modestly. Now, this was a Persian custom, interestingly enough, but it's covering the body rather than dealing with the heart. The Allah of the Quran can't change the heart, but it can enforce his will externally. If people are standing up for human rights, let alone women's rights, in Iran, then I see a diminishing of the Quran's authority and influence over the lay people, which is fantastic, because there is horrible human rights violations in every single chapter of the Quran. But the point of emphasis that we need to emphasize is not to get them to abandon Islam, but replace their adherence to this mad warlord's rantings and ravings into an understanding of who God truly is, and that's where this ultimately needs to go. If Iran abandons Muhammad, great, but we don't just want them to be a slightly better place to go to hell from. We want them to pursue Jesus, who, by the way, when a woman was manipulated and set up to be stoned to death for adultery, whether it was a modesty or whatever, Jesus defended her. That's the model I want to follow, not Muhammad, who said they are to be covered or abused or molested. Yeah, and Joel Rosenberg, the New York Times bestselling author, uh, in his book uh, Epicenter, uh, talks about uh, how there is a tremendous revival going on among uh, people in Iran, people turning to faith in Christ, which uh, the uh, Iranian regime finds very, very troubling. Pray for the people in Iran. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the United States that God would have mercy on us. We'd be able to continue to share his good news with this lost and dying world. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.